St. Paul and Jesus Deaf here in Austin, Texas, together with Pastor Andy Packer, uh, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, Collinsville, Illinois. Pastor Packer, I heard a rumor about you, Pastor Packer. <laughs> that is that you asked Destiny for a tube of Just for Men for Christmas. Is that true? Uh, no, um, my my beard is fantastic. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's, it's a sign of wisdom. Don't you know these things? Oh, sorry. <laughs> All right. What do you got for us today? Uh, the first one is um, has to do with the origins of the Israelites' religion. And um, someone watched a, a, a video and came across a, a page that said that Judaism was originally polytheistic and only later became monotheistic. And they said, I hadn't heard this claim made so vigorously before and was disheartened somewhat by it. I understand that non-Christians must, by necessity, make a naturalistic explanation of our religion. And it's definitely possible that the evidence these historians are looking at was the non-faithful Jews who worshipped other gods besides God. But I would still like to hear your take on this or hear you answer this in a video. Hope all is well. Thank you. All is well. I, uh, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, but there, I think all, if, if the, there's might be a through line through all the questions that you mentioned right before we started this, this idea that, um, we assume evolution and then we answer every question by this assumption of an evolution, meaning things, everything goes from simple to complex. Everything goes from kind of, uh, it, it's, it's building up. There's a, there's a, um, a progression of things. And so we, we have, we, uh, we take that evolutionary mindset and apply it to theology so that you get some sort of primitive religion and then it develops and develops and develops. And, and we, we, we see that, I guess, in, in history, you don't see it in the Bible. I, I think that it's not even conservative Christians are tempted to read the Bible through like a Jewish lens, like the Old Testament was a Jewish book and the New Testament is a Christian book. Even that famous Augustine saying, I really don't like that the doctrines were obscured in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament, how, how, hidden in the old, revealed in the new, or how does that, you know that Augustine quote? I, yeah, hidden, I do, hidden versus revealed, yeah. I do not like that. I, I think that if you, I, I think if Adam and Eve were to suddenly be revived and come to, um, and come to Collinsville, uh, Illinois, they would not go to the synagogue. They would come to your church. They would confess the Trinity, the incarnation, the substitutionary atonement, that all of these things that we are essential Christian doctrines were confessed from the very, very beginning when by Adam and Eve in the garden and out of the garden, when the Lord came to them and, and gave them this doctrine that Noah was a Trinitarian, that King David confessed the incarnation. In fact, we know, I, I think a place to look at that is in Acts chapter 2, when, when Peter is preaching the promises of David, and he says, David, being a prophet, knew, and he knew of the resurrection of the Messiah. So that, so it's not like the even the Old Testament prophecies that were given were like written down, but the prophets didn't understand what they were writing. No, David, we know from that text that David knew these things. We confess them. Now, I, I don't think that you would, so you I, you don't see evidence of like the move from polytheism to monotheism in the Old Testament itself. You got to go to like the archaeological sort of things. And what we do see is that there's two tendencies, there's two errors uh, when it comes to theology, there's two different ways to become a Trinitarian heretic. 
So our the, the orthodox doctrine that Adam would have, and Eve would have confessed is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three gods in one person. You can abandon, sorry, th three persons in one God. Sheesh, let's make sure we get that right. <laughs> Did I say three gods in one person? Uh, I didn't catch that, but you, I think we'll, I we'll said, rewind the tape and we'll uh, play that back oh, for everyone. Boy, oh boy. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one essential essence, three persons. Now, you can... You can um, you can get this wrong by denying the plurality of persons and become a strict monotheistic heretic, as in modern Judaism, modern Islam, and some other forms of modern heretic Christianity, like Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, and Mormons and so forth. So you can deny the plurality of persons. It seems like most the devil's chief tactic is to deny the unity of essence. And so if you if you deny that and you just have the plurality of persons, what you end up is getting polytheism, multiple gods. And it seems to be the devil's chief tactic to go to polytheism because he can then get some worship for himself and for all the other demons. So that's what Deuteronomy 32 says. When you worship the idols, you're worshiping demons. And Paul reasserts that in 1 Corinthians. So that th there's there's two different ways to become a heretic when it comes to the doctrine of God, and it does seem like the preference in the ancient world is a polytheistic preference. The the preference in the modern world seems to be more like a monotheistic pre uh, preference, but both are heresies falling away from the doctrine of the Trinity. So we would confess that yeah, uh, all of these false ideas of God are there, especially in the ancient world. There was polytheism everywhere. But that was a that was not like evolving into Judaistic monotheism. It was actually an abandoning of the doctrine of monotheism to this to this plurality. That's so that I mean, this is even the way we understand like animal sacrifice and even child sacrifice in all the pagan worship is it wasn't. It's not like the doctrine of the atonement grew out of this pagan idea and now it's sanctified by the sacrifice of the son. The pagan idea was a falling away from the truth that God would sacrifice his son for the sins of the world, and that gets distorted by the devil to we have to sacrifice our own sons and daughters. So that that it's it's not an evolution, it's a devolution. And I think we just see that if we think of history in this way, like the farther you get from Jerusalem, the farther you get from the prophets, the the more pagan, the more drastically wicked and demonic and dark things become, and they... And and we see then a, a not an evolution of religious confession, but a devolution of it. No, I think that's a great explanation. I mean, Hebrews eleven too, right? Even Abraham knew that the ultimate promise was not about a piece of land, but it was about a heavenly city. Like he knew these things. It says. And I think part of the problem is we don't believe that they actually believed what you just explained—the Trinity, the incarnation—that they didn't really believe that. We, we again, we we follow kind of outsiders views of the Bible who think they're just were backwards, didn't know much. And I think another part of this too, is the, the, the Old Testament does have this view of, um, and I, I realize it's been pushed too far in various ways, but there is this idea that the Bible recognizes as divine counsel. God talks with the angels who are called sons of God in the old Testament. Like he even asked them for their advice, not because he needs it, but because he works through means he'll say, what should we do about this? And an angel will say, what about this? He'll say, okay, let's do that. So people look at that, I think, and get the wrong idea 
as if we put those sons of God, those angels on the same level as the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they, they, these scholars don't understand. I don't think they understand the Trinity, right? Like they don't, I don't think they understand what we mean by monotheism to begin with. And so they come up with how it had to be. And this is the same all the time. I just showed my seventh graders uh, a video on um, patterns of evidence on the Exodus. I don't know if you've watched that one. It's, it's quite good. And he'll talk to these archaeologists who refuse to acknowledge that their, their timeline is off. And even though he has all this evidence, he's a journalist, he presents them all this evidence. Here's all the ways in which this is wrong. And they say, well, the experts can't, can't be wrong. Like we, we won't even look at that. And then you go to the experts and they're like, well, we don't really understand Egyptian chronology as well as we think we do, but this is what we think based on, on this. And he's like, but what about all this evidence of the Jews at an earlier time period? And even in the conquest, we have all this evidence of the, the biblical pattern being correct. And they just dismiss it and say, that can't be. It's the same thing when they talk about the, they have to be polytheistic because that's the way it was. That's right. their answer. Right. And their evidence is just things they find that they reinterpret. And I, I think the, um, I think his name was Mark that, that wrote us. He said, he said that, yeah, they, they were worshiping other gods. Well, exactly. Like we know, we know, we know they all struggled. We know that, uh, uh, Rachel stole household idols. We know that Saul had household idols. We know that various of these people had false worship going on. Um, we have evidence. The Bible tells us these things. So if you would just stick with what the text says, I think you can easily see that. Yeah, there were polytheistic people among the Jews, and they were rebuked for that and told to worship the one true God time and time and time again. So when I hear these things, I always think that's nothing new. Like we already knew they worshiped other gods. Like Stephen's whole sermon right in the book of acts he tells them they worship the stars and they worship this thing and that thing and they wouldn't worship and they nice. rejected the true god so i mean we're told this repeatedly it's not a surprise to us um it's just how do you interpret the data right it's like creation versus evolution it's like all these things how do you interpret the data and we say well the bible makes it clear what what we think about that and we know from the beginning what what it says um you, it's it's the same thing like moses writes the, the all the different source documents for Moses and all these things they can't ever believe that like God actually did these things so there there's a there's a with the source doc so a lot of people have heard about this JDEP uh, idea that's like the popularized version of of source criticism and it says that there was the idea is there was four different authors who wrote four different documents and they were at some point compiled and you can tell who's writing by these various characteristics so that the J calls God Yahweh and the E calls prefers Elohim and the 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 D wrote Deuteronomy <laughs> I guess cuz it's I don't know and then the L or what JDEP what the priestly was all interested in the liturgy and stuff like that and then they were somehow compiled but it goes back to seeing each one of them as a particular political view so you have the argument you have the pro David party and they're writing this political literature, or you have the pro priestly party, the pro, and and it reduces all these text documents to political propaganda, and the Bible then becomes this kind of hodgepodge of various different political arguments. And here's the really ugly thing about the whole understanding, is that you're you're impugning on all the prophets and all the writers of the Scripture. 
uh, selfish political motives. It it makes it makes everything dirty, and it and it's probably an expression of what Paul says to Titus, to the to the unclean, everything becomes unclean. If you if you come at the scriptures with a bad conscience, then you see sin everywhere, and you see bad motives everywhere, and you can't see anything good and holy there at all. And it's part of this iconoclastic spirit of our own age, where we can't have any heroes, can't have anything good, you can't have anybody. Who does well, and that's the—that's what they've made of the authors of the scripture. It's a—it's not only a wrong way of reading the scriptures; it's a horrible way of reading the scriptures. I mean, it takes all the life and all the joy out of it, and it—it's um, really ugly. It's an—it's—it's an—it's an ugly way to think. You know, some people who just like they think about the world in such ugly ways. It's—it's—it's it's, it's not just wrong. It's ah, that's. That's how the, the, these Bible scholars think of the world and the scriptures. It's, it's like, how, ooh, it almost makes you want to shudder. I have a better source document theory. Um, Adam wrote things down. Seth wrote things down. On and on. Noah wrote things down. And uh, if you want some sources, <laughs> there's a good chance Moses may have had written things from, from the fathers of the faith. You know, um, that, uh, that, that'd be a lot different than their view. Yeah, that's right. My, and, and that Moses compiled all these old documents and that that's why the Joseph story is so long because he was in Egypt. And so he had access to papyrus, whereas Adam had to chisel it on rocks. And that's an old Jewish <laughs> idea that that my doctor uh, Judish uh, used to teach. And his proof text was from the Song of Zechariah that the Lord has had prophets since the world began. So Adam was a prophet, Noah was a prophet. And so the 10 generations in the books of, of Genesis were the 10 tablets that were assembled. The, um, the, I think that's an awesome idea. It's Who doesn't agree with that is Martin Chemnitz, who says that the first written words were the Ten Commandments. So that the Ten Commandments were the origin of written language. And that's also an awesome idea. So there's these like two competing awesome ideas, and I wish <laughs> they could both be true, but they one or the other, but... Oh, we'll flip a coin. <laughs> I think right, you should that... go to the last question instead of the bondage of the will question because it's right on the same topic. Um, About you, Paul, Paul and Jesus. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I will skip. That question that you didn't skip want around. to talk about. Yeah. The, the one I was trying to avoid. Well, it's because there was like 20 pages of documentation for us to look at. Um. All right. So. One statement Short, that just this is, by the way, for those writing in questions, we appreciate the questions shorter, the better, like one sentence yeah, questions yeah. to the ones that Pastor Patrick likes. Yeah, no. Well, it's yeah, it, it's hard to go through, you know, pages of 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 uh, info. All right. But I'll sum it up. Um, one statement that they keep hearing is Pauline versus Petrine Christianity that well, this I mean, you've heard this before, right? Paul changed everything that you had Jesus and then Peter follows Jesus, but then Paul comes along and Paul changes everything. Um, according to their arguments, there is no difference between the moral, civil, and ceremonial parts of the law, and we're still bound by them. And if you look at Jesus' teachings, he seems to say, say so, telling the rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Um, so it comes down to, and his questions come up with this, um, address this Paul versus Peter split. And can we demonstrate the Lutheran Christian understanding of our relationship to the law without 
using Paul's epistles. Um, so Paul versus Peter, us and Paul go. I think the, the maybe the place to to look at this most carefully is Paul in First Corinthians fifteen where he says, the gospel which I received, I delivered over to you, that Christ Jesus suffered for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day according to the scripture. In other words, that that Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and risen is the heart of Christianity from Paul and Peter and Jesus. I mean, did Jesus believe that he was risen from the dead? Yes, he did. <laughs> and so the doctrine of Jesus, and did Peter believe that? Yes, he did. And did Paul believe it? Yes, he did. And that, so that becomes the foundational thing. And that Jesus did all of those things for us is the key. So that Paul will argue his doctrine, not from himself, not as a private revelation, but as the doctrine of the church. I mean, there's... Luke takes pains to develop the fact that Paul and Peter met together and they shook hands together and that they had the same doctrine. So we have that history. And Paul will argue in Galatians, this is really important, uh, how it was with him and Peter, that he even had to rebuke Peter and that Peter received his rebuke. So the relationship between Paul and Peter, it's not like they are some sort of abstractions, like, like Pauline and Petrine actually mean anything. They're just Paul and Peter, and those two guys were working together. They were on the same team. They were looking at each other's writings. They, they were commending each other's writings. Peter Peter probably writes his letter to the churches that Paul started in Turkey when Paul's going over to Spain, commending them and commending what Peter said, uh, and talking about how the, he has the Holy Spirit, and but people twist uh, his statements because some are hard to understand. I mean, there's... So this is not some sort of abstraction. That's part of the problem that we're talking about in the first question. We're not abstracting these things, but seeing what was actually there. Now, the reason, to, I suppose, to set Peter against Paul, whenever you do this, like, you know, you learn this trick pretty early on in childhood, is that if you can get your parents to disagree with each other, then you can manipulate the situation to get what you want. <laughs> yep. And the same thing happens theologically. If I can get Paul and Peter disagreeing, then I can get to the theology that I want. If I can get Jesus and James disagreeing, or Paul and James disagreeing, or whatever, then I can get to the theology I want. Well, here's the point. You're not supposed to be getting to the theology that you want, but receive like what exactly what Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you that we want to receive what the Lord has given us through the prophets and apostles. So uh, I think this is related to something you said a few weeks ago about uh, women's ordination, that the underlying issue is the authority of scripture. So do we believe that the scriptures are actually God breathed or not? Because if they are, then there really is one author. It is God who gave them through various men who, yes, their personalities, etc., show through whatever, but there's one author. It's God. And so whether it came through Peter or Paul, it's the word of God, right? We don't say this is the word of Paul when we read it in, in the divine service. We don't say this is the word of Peter. We say this is the word of the Lord. And they say, thanks be to God. Why? Because it came from him. So to pit them against each other is to pit the Holy Spirit against the Holy Spirit. And that's where I think the real danger is, right? We're saying, well, Paul, if you have to appeal to Paul for your theology, then you're wrong. 
well, why can't I appeal to Paul? He's in the Bible because he's writing what the Holy Spirit led him to write. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So I can look at Peter. I can look at Paul. And I, I think behind that too is the idea that they are writing different things, right? Behind that idea is that Paul and Peter had to have written different things. Jesus was teaching something different. They all taught different things. And now we have to figure out who's right. But I think that's a rejection of biblical authority. It's it's hmm. starting with, you know, the wrong, the wrong footing to begin with. Uh, so first we have to acknowledge that this is God's word. And then second, we could say, okay, sometimes it seems like there might be a contradiction. So let's look at it and study it and see what it actually says. Yeah. And then usually we realize that we were mistaken and the Bible is saying the same thing in every place. Jesus and Peter and Paul all confess the same thing about the law and about the gospel because they're all speaking the same thing. Um, and it's all and from the Lord's. And Isaiah and David and Moses, right, the all the way through, exactly. top, top to bottom. Uh, that's right. And and that, you know, Paul's basic argument to exclude works, he he's really leans into this so beautifully. But it basically comes down to the idea that Jesus is the Savior. And if Jesus is the Savior, then we are not. So so when something is is asserted, then a lot of things are excluded. So the confession that Christ is is Savior excludes everything else from being Savior, and that's Paul's basic argument. But it's there. I mean, it's there in the teaching of Je it's there in the claims of Jesus. It's there in the teaching of Peter and James and and John, all, all the Gospels, all the way through. Well, it's like I was talking about before we um, started recording that we've kind of respond to things like we believe historical criticism is actually true. So we say that historical criticism lost and we won the battle for the Bible, but then we often look at the history of the church, look at what we were just answering about Moses. Now we look at doctrine in the New Testament and we answer it like we believe that historical criticism is actually true, that it can't actually be all from God, that it can't actually really be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we have to figure all of these things out. Um, whereas if we actually read the Bible as if it was actually God's word to us, then we don't have to pit Matthew against Mark or Mark versus Luke or any of them against Paul or any of them against the Old Testament because we'd see it's all one book. Um, and I think the sooner we get back to talking that way, that the more it would help us that we actually believe that God's behind it all. And then we can stop debating things that we shouldn't be debating, honestly. I mean, that's how I kind of feel about some of these things. Like <clears throat> as Christians, it's good to know that these arguments are out there, but if we believe it's God's word, then a lot of it can quickly be dismissed, I think. Or even the argument he was saying, well, then we're still under all of the law. I mean, okay, so if you get rid of Galatians, you can maybe make that argument. I think you're still misunderstanding everything that came before it, but maybe. Um, but then you still have to say Galatians isn't God's word. <laughs> you still have to say, well, what Paul wrote actually wasn't God's word, so we don't have to follow what Paul says on this, so we have to keep everything in the Old Testament. Um, but even the book of Acts, you already see that coming undone they have a whole right they, they have a whole meeting a whole synod to, to meet and discuss uh old testament law in relationship to the the gentile christians that's already mm -hmm. taken place in the book of acts so i just don't buy any of it um and i don't like to waste too much time on those things because i think they take you away from actually studying what the bible really says mm -hmm. now Bondage of the wood. Now I'm ready for the, I'm warmed up. So I'm ready for this. Okay. This one. You now. want that one? Nope. I could have given you the easier one. You want that one. Okay. All right. Because we have two left. Okay. But this will probably take the rest of the time. Okay. All right. 
I'll try to summarize this because this is a long, a long message. Um, all right, we'll go to this, the key paragraph. If my sinfulness is innate to my humanness, original sin, which keeps me hostage or a slave without me being able to change it, bondage of the will, how can my salvation be contingent on anything? Faith, for example. Are people who lived before Christ or died before the gospel reached them automatically lost? How is the idea of hell congruent with God's goodness? If sin is not our fault and Christ came to die for all humans, why would God punish us for something we cannot change? Um, and so, and there's, there's more kind of along the same lines, but um, to them, this doesn't, this doesn't fit that we have original sin. We have bondage of the will. And yet God holds us responsible and will even damn us to hell if we, if we don't repent and believe the gospel. Yeah. The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> I, and I can't, in fact, not only do I not know, I do know that I can't know the answer. And I also know that every answer to this question is wrong. Uh, if you try to sort it out with your own mind. Now, we could say some things about it, but this this gets us to the this essential theological question, which is called by Francis Pieper the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologian, which has to do with why are some people saved and not others? Because you, you set it up really well in the question, we can't save ourselves. God only saves us, and not everybody is saved. So, so if salvation is God's work and God works to save everyone, why is not everyone saved? Well, so it must be that God doesn't work to save everyone. That's the Calvinist answer, limited atonement, double predestination and limited atonement. Or that we must have something to do with it. That's the Arminian free will theologian answer, because the difference must be in us. But we say, no, neither one of those is true. Uh, the universal grace, so, so the three things that we teach that do not fit together are as follows. One, universal grace, that God loves everyone, that Christ died for everyone, that the Holy Spirit is working to bring faith to everyone. Number two, grace alone, which is that we can't, that we are in, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that our will is in bondage, that we cannot choose to come to Christ or to believe in him on our own, that that has to be given to us as a gift worked through the word and the spirit. All we can always do is reject. And that third, not everybody is saved. Some are condemned and some and some are saved. And the, the Bible teaches all three of those. Things. Now, the reason why people calls that the crux theologorum is because it's, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a crucifixion of our own reason. And we have to say, I cannot sort out how those three things are together. I can't sort out how God would hold people accountable for sins that they cannot but do, for example, or how God can hold people accountable for not believing in a gospel that they haven't heard. Now, the reason is because it is a true guilt. And not only is it true that we... That we that we cannot choose God, but that we do not choose God. So, the, the, you know, the cannot has to do with our bondage, but the do not has to do with our guilt, so that we are held morally guilty for our sin and for our unbelief.
uh, uh, we are held accountable for that by God. Uh, and, and it's just taught by the scriptures. Now, we might say, well, that's not fair. But even our thinking it's not fair is a sin that we're guilty of. And um, because God is God in that way. And so at some point, we just have to say, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how all these things go. I do know that if, if anyone is saved, it is God's doing. If anyone is damned, it is their own fault. And those two things might not make sense to me, but, it, but the Bible teaches me to confess them both. And at that point, I have to simply stop and worship. So that's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 teach us especially. Who, who am I to complain the, the vessel to the potter? So I have to stop trying to sort it out and praise God who has in fact revealed his word to me and to the one who's writing the question. Praise God for revealing his word to me and giving me faith to trust in him. And that's, as I think, as far as we can go. And I, like you said a moment ago, all of these are related because that goes back to, do we trust the Bible's words on this topic or not? And so one of the things we confess as Lutherans is we're going to say what the Bible says, but then we have to stop where it stops. And if the Bible doesn't untangle all of the things we'd like to have untangled, we just have to trust that God, God understands and God knows and God can make sense of it. And something being uh, beyond our reason or comprehension doesn't make it illogical. It just means that we don't, we can't sort it out because we're not God. We're finite. He's infinite. We can't solve all of these problems and issues, but we're not called to. So again, it's submitting ourselves to God's authority. Do we believe it's actually God's word? And does he actually say those three things? Does he teach those three things? And if they don't make complete sense to us, then the problem isn't with God's word or those three things. The problem is with us thinking it has to make sense to us for us to believe it. And then we just have to humble ourselves before the word and say, I, I don't understand how this all works, but I trust that this is what you've revealed. And then leave it at that. That's all we can do. It's great. Great, great. Let's stop there. I think it's a good place to stop. <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, for uh, these questions. You can submit more. How, what's the best way, Pastor Packer? We, they, if they send them to the website, wolfmuller.co slash contact, that works out. If you also put a chat on the bottom of this uh, video, Pastor Packer will find that as well. Um, <clears throat> and sign up for the Wednesday Whatnot. That's the almost weekly free email that gets sent out. So we just sent out a theological Christmas gift guide last week. So hopefully that's helpful. Uh, I think that's all. Thanks for listening. God's peace be with you.